0: Christ has risen. Awesome. You guys have got it now. Um, So my name is Albert. I'm the lead pastor of the Tapestry Church Network and delighted to be here in Richmond as we celebrate Easter together. So back in the 16th century, when Matteo Ricci, an Italian Jesuit missionary, went to China, he brought along with him various artifacts and paintings and so forth in order to illustrate the Christian story to the Chinese people there who had never heard about Jesus before. The Chinese readily adopted the portraits of Virgin Mary, holding her child, but when Ricci produced a picture of the crucifixion and tried to explain how this God, this man, grew up only to be executed, they responded with revulsion and horror, that they much preferred the Virgin Mary and insisted on worshipping her rather than on this crucified God, because God is supposed to come in glory, power, and might. God does not come as a humble male, and God does not die. And especially, God does not die in the worst possible imaginable way ever, nailed on the cross. But what they didn't understand and what maybe Ricci didn't try to win them over too much and emphasized enough, what this this God, this man, this Jesus doesn't stay dead that those early listeners to the gospel in China miss the very foundation and crux of our faith, that it's not the crucifixion which is at the crux of our faith, it's the crucifixion with the resurrection that is the crux of our faith, that these two things we have to hold together. In fact, the resurrection is so important that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the text that we'll be studying in our small groups this week, Paul writes this, if Christ had not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. The reason why we call this past Friday Good Friday and not the Dark Friday or Bad Friday is because of what happened on that first Easter Sunday, 1,986 years or so ago. What happened? What took place? Well, we're going to take a closer look this morning, remember the resurrection story, and we're going to look starting in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, and it reads like this. And I apologize for people on this side that the projector just broke on Friday. It was a bad Friday indeed. (laughs) So it begins like this. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. So we read that it's early dawn on Sunday morning and it's still quite dark outside. In fact, it has been dark since Friday. Dark with Peter's denial, dark with Judas' betrayal, dark with Pilate's cowardice, and dark with Christ's anguish. It's been dark since Friday, for it was Friday that Jesus was nailed on the cross. And on this dark morning, there are two Marys. One is Mary Magdalene, the other Mary is the mother of James. They leave their home and head to the tomb of Jesus. This dark morning encounters and promises only one thing, an encounter with a corpse, They are not going to the tomb expecting a miracle. They are not going to the tomb expecting something good. No, their Lord, their friend was now dead, and their hope was all but gone. We know this because in the Gospels of Luke and Mark, we read that they take with them a jar of spices. Why the spices? Well, they're taking the spices with them in order to kind of um, uh, embalm him, treat him, preserve the body as was custom, in order to preserve the body after burial. They are going to the tomb to anoint him then with oil and spices. And I can imagine walking on this Friday, tears flowing down their eyes. They're going to the tomb to see Jesus one last time. Simply an act of compassion and sympathy expressed to their fallen rabbi. These women loved him dearly. They were the last to leave Calvary and the first to show up to the grave. And as they approach the tomb, as recorded in the Gospel of Mark, the women begin to ask each other, Who will roll the stone away so we can see Jesus? How are we going to get past this rock in order to see Jesus one last time? But before they could answer, surprise, amazement, incredible what happens next. Picking up in verse 2. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, "Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here; he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay." Then he quickly, then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him now. I have told you." Wow, isn't that something? Not only was there an earthquake, which had been something else, not only was the entrance of the tomb rolled back, not only was there appearance of an angel that was dressed like you know, lightning and all in white, not only did the guards shake like dead men, and by the way, this word shake is exactly the same word as earthquake earlier. So, so overwhelmed by everything, these guards had a kind of an internal seismic event. They quaked and they collapsed like dead men. But also, did you hear what the angel said? Come and see, the tomb is empty. Christ has risen. Oh my word, I thought we got this together, people. Ready? Christ has risen. Now there's something in this passage I never noticed before, and maybe you've never noticed it either. But why did the angel move the stone? For whom did he roll away the rock? I mean, was it rolled away for Jesus? That's what I've always thought, right? I've always assumed that the angel kind of moved the stone so Jesus could come out. But think about it. The stone really have to be moved in order for Jesus to make an exit? I mean, Jesus has just conquered death. He's come back to life. Do you think he needed help to push away a rock? Can you imagine Jesus going, hello, I'm alive, but I'm stuck here. Can someone move the stone so I can get out? That's ridiculous, right? Of course not. No, the stone was moved. After all, I mean, the stone was moved. By who and why? This text gives us the impression, though, that Jesus is already long gone. He's already left the tomb. If we read verse 2, it says, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and just sat on it. It sounds like Jesus has left the building. It sounds like he's long gone. And the only reason, then, that the angel showed up was because of these two women. The angel says to them, He is not here. He is risen. He's long gone, just as he promised. Come and see for yourself. The stone was moved then, not for Jesus, but for the women. Not so Jesus could come out, but for the women to look in. So we too can join in the, with these women and look in this morning and see the tomb is empty So the darkness is gone, the sun is up, the sun is out, Jesus is alive. Their despair now turns into hope, grief turns into joy, anguish turns into peace, disbelief turns into belief, and immediately seeing the empty tomb, we read in verse 8, the story continues, verse 8, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples, suddenly Jesus met them, greetings he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Can you imagine the elation of these two women? Jesus is alive. He is flesh and bone. He is standing right there in front of our midst. And so, what do they do? Immediately, they drop to their knees, clasp their hands around his feet, and worship him. And I love this posture. The first act after coming face-to-face with the resurrected Jesus is one of worship. Adoration and worship, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Maybe it's at this very moment. These two women don't fully realize the scope of what has just taken place. They are too immersed in the worship of Jesus. But it is in the resurrection that everything changes. Everything, Not only in their lives, but in the lives of every single person that has, is, and will live on this planet. I like how N.T. Wright summarizes it when he writes this. He writes, Matthew, the author, clearly intended to write of something that had actually happened. Something that had not only changed the women's hearts, but had torn a hole in normal history. This event had changed the world forever. It announced not as a theory, but as a fact That God's kingdom had come, that the Son of Man had been vindicated after his suffering, and that there was a dawning, not just of another day, another week in the history of Israel and the world, but the start of God's new age that would continue until the nations had been brought into obedience. Take away the resurrection of Jesus, in fact, and you leave Matthew without a gospel. The cross is the climax of his story, but it only makes the sense it does, As the cross of the one who is then raised from the dead. That it's the resurrection that changes everything. Jesus has defeated death and sin once and for all. The kingdom of God has come so that when we accept Jesus into our hearts, the same Jesus that said, I am the resurrection, the way, the truth, and the life, whoever believes in me will have life. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, we too are reborn. We are resurrected. We gain a spiritual life that never ends, a spiritual life that starts today. Resurrection is not only about gaining eternal life, which is awesome in itself, but abundant life. And I'm not talking about abundance in terms of money and stuff. I'm talking about abundance of faith, hope, and joy. I'm talking about the change that takes place in you, alive to God. Alive to God's holiness. Alive to God's will. God's kingdom, power, and glory. Alive, fully, completely alive. What happens next here? Well, again, for the second time, first the angels and now Jesus. For the second time, Jesus says to these two women, do not be afraid. Now go and tell people I'm alive. And so filled with overwhelming joy, the two women run. They sprint as fast as they possibly can in order to tell others that Christ has risen. Like the two Marys who enjoy rush to tell others the good news, so too we need to exclaim that Jesus is alive. Worship always should lead to mission. The overflow of our vertical relationship with Jesus and what he did on the cross has to spill out horizontally for the benefit of others. In response to the resurrection of Christ, we cannot sit on our butts and twiddle our thumbs and sit around and do nothing. The good news has to be shared. I love this old African-American spiritual, which goes something like this. Sit down, brother. Can't sit down. Sit down, sister. Can't sit down. Sit down, brother. Can't sit down. Can't sit down. I got just got me to heaven, and I can't sit down. Do you believe that? Do you believe truly believe in the empty tomb and the resurrection? Because if we honestly believe it, then we can't sit around and do nothing and not tell people the good news. In his famous parable of the madman, existentialist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche writes of a madman who runs around town, wondering and looking for God, seeing if God is around. When he gets to the steps of the church, he loudly proclaims, and this is the famous words that Nietzsche is often attributed to, the madman says, God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. Well, the town people respond, what are you talking about? God isn't dead. To, the, to which the wise man exclaims these words, what after all then are these churches now if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of God? God. Again, the madman says, What after all are these churches if they are not tombs? The madman does have a point, doesn't he? In many ways, is he not saying, and I'm just paraphrasing now, but if God isn't dead, why do you who follow him, why are you dead? The church is like a graveyard you're as guilt-ridden, confused, and neurotic as I am, and I'm allowed, I'm a madman, but you people claim you have a savior. So when are you going to start living like you're saved? Why is it that most people think that Christians are the most depressing, legalistic, and unhappy people in the world? Right? When the crux of our faith is one of joy and victory and peace and life, we who have been saved need to start acting like we are saved. And I love to hear stories. And every once in a while, I hear these resurrection stories bubble up. For example, of a married couple who suddenly started going to church, who uh, really was wondering why their real estate agent was so nice. So why are you so good to me? And the realtor said, I don't know, Jesus? Uh, Would you like to come to church with me? Or how about another person who decided to become a Christian on his deathbed and even got baptized in the hospital the day before he passed away? Just because the person that they shared the hospital room with had an amazing piece about them and talked about the hope of an eternal future of Je- with Jesus, or the person who came to church, then Alpha, and eventually got baptized, because the person that they hit in a car crash, so the person that they hit, like the victim of the car crash, instead of anger, showed grace and showed warmth and peace and patience and encouraged her to discover God. Or the one person who started coming to church just because they overheard a conversation at Starbucks between members, or how one person I know quit their good paying job and committed himself overseas to tell people about Jesus and to work in ministries that deal with poverty and justice. Come on. That's resurrection in action. We need to be so contagious so full of joy, of grace, of love, and acceptance that people cannot help but catch what we have, that filled with joy, we need to throw more Jesus parties and celebrate the victory found in the resurrection. Now, the reason why I like the resurrection story in the Gospel of Matthew, and the resurrection is obviously found in all four, is that it goes straight in Matthew, in the same chapter, to the ascension story at the end. That incarnation leads to crucifixion. Crucifixion leads to resurrection. Resurrection leads to the great commission. Jesus appears to his disciples, and in the very last part of Matthew 28, this happens. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, go And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commission is made out of four verbs. Can you pick them out? Helps that I bolded and underlined them. There are to go, to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach. And as Christians, these are our marching orders. These four verbs are action verbs with exclamation marks. They are to go, to make disciples, to baptize and to teach. It's ascending, and it's in line with our vision as a church, to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. But how well do we live out these verbs? Now, quickly going back to verse 16 and 17. Verse 17, it reads, When they saw him, when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some Doubted. Unfortunately, that's not the greatest translation because when we think of doubt, we think of being skeptical or unbelieving. But the word here in the Greek is the word distatso, which is probably better translated as to waver or to hesitate. That some of the disciples of Jesus hesitated. The word actually comes with a picture. It's like coming to a fork in the road, right? Crossroads, and you have to decide do I go this way or do I go that way? Do I take that path or this path? Which way do I go? Do I truly worship the resurrected Jesus or do I hesitate and hold back? Do I go or do I play safe? Do I stay and not risk it? Do I go and make disciples or do I sit down, brother? Sit down, sister. Oh, hey, did you hear about this excellent promotion with Spotify right now? So what happens is uh, that if you join Spotify Premium for 9 dollars they will give you a free Google Home like for free, and you can cancel at any time. So it's like getting a free Google Home for 80 bucks. In fact, if you're already a Spotify premium member like I am, you just have to follow the link on the website, and all you have to do is just go follow along, and you get a free Google Home. Like, mine's already in the mail. It's awesome. Colin told us at the staff meeting last Tuesday, we all did it right there, because it is good news. (laughs) That's considered good news. Why are we so excited to tell people about a promotion, a free gift? But when it comes to the greatest, best, life changing free gift you could ever possibly get and give in your entire life, we are silent. And we are hesitant. And we are afraid. We might as well just start rolling back the tomb and get back in our vertical tombs. God is dead. Friends, the salvation story is good news. Thank goodness that most of the disciples did not hesitate on that mountain, but they began to go out and tell people from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Asia Minor, and to the ends of the earth, the good news of the resurrected Jesus. We would not be here if they hesitated. And like those first disciples, we need to be so filled with joy, so filled with excitement, so filled with, this is the best thing ever that we cannot help tell people the good, free gift of salvation. I really believe that our response as Christians with the resurrection story is first, worship. But it always has to immediately be followed by mission. To tell people about Jesus, and of course we have to be smart about it. To go tell people in word and deed, not only in proclamation, but also by the lives we lead. By living authentic, real, generous, graceful, Filled lives filled with joy, hope, peace, and the difference that the resurrection makes in our lives. Who's with me? Christ has risen. Let's pray. Father God, the resurrection story is the greatest story ever. That you took, you have, you took your son, you put him on the cross, but he did not stay dead. And because of that, we have life, real life. Alive to your spirit, alive to God, eternal and abundant. And we need to tell other people. We need to tell our neighbors, our family, our friends this good news that Jesus makes through word and the li- difference that your Son makes in our lives. So help us. Help us this Resurrection Sunday that we can praise your name, praise the name of Jesus, to lift him high and to continue to lift him high so the world, the whole world, can see. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.